0: Hello and welcome to the Overland Journal podcast. I'm your host Scott Brady, and for this episode, my co-host Matt Scott is not with me because we are deep into the outback of the Colorado Plateau. Now, we're not going to talk about exactly where we were because it uh, I've been sworn to secrecy. So, our guest for today is a very special traveler and someone that has become very notable within the industry, Maggie McDermott. She is very well traveled as a solo traveler. She has been all the way up through Alaska and through significant portions of the U.S. West in her EJ74 Land Cruiser, and then she has also traveled extensively in her Forerunner as well, 1999 Forerunner, and she was with us for this particular outing in the desert. And we talk a lot about her time with Seven P International, and we also talk about her experience traveling solo. And I think that you'll enjoy my conversation with Maggie McDermott. We're going to take a brief break and we will be right back. This week's episode is supported in part by iCamper. They make innovative hard shell and soft-sided roof tents that are designed to survive long-term overland use. Their revolutionary X cover won the Overland Journal Editor's Choice Award, eliminating the bulky PVC cover and also allowing for the fitment of crossbars for carrying bikes and kayaks. Their SkyCamp Mini is another award-winning design that provides a hard shell tent in the footprint of a much smaller clamshell model. This is the perfect solution for smaller vehicles or on vehicles where rack space is dedicated to other systems. iCamper believes that the best times are those spent traveling, discovering the world with those you love most. You can find out more about their quality tents at iCamper.com. Maggie, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. We are in an undisclosed location, according to Mr. Xavier. So we've been out with a great group of folks traveling in the back country, testing some product, grabbing some content along the way. And I also thought this would be a great opportunity for us to sit down and have a podcast because you've lived a very interesting life and you have some very cool vehicles and you're well-traveled. And you've also worked a lot with 7P International. So I think that there's a lot of great lessons that we can talk about that you've learned in your own journeys on this podcast. So thanks for being here with us.
1: No, oh, thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. <laughs>
0: Well, I think it would be fun to talk maybe first about your first Overland vehicle that you purchased. And if it's different from the one that I know of, then (laughs) you should tell the whole story.
1: Um, So I have a 1986 BJ-70 Land Cruiser that's imported from Japan. And it's not just my first Overland vehicle. That's the first vehicle I ever purchased. Nice. Um, (laughs) I kind of fell into Land Cruisers, honestly, by... I saw a Craigslist ad for an FJ-40, probably... six years before I bought my car and I was—I just became obsessed and I had to have a Land Cruiser. So I started researching them and the rabbit hole just kept getting deeper and deeper and deeper. Sure. And that's when I saw the import market And ended up uh, deciding to buy one from Land Cruisers Direct. And it's just been such an incredible ride since. Um,
0: (laughs) What were were some of the things about the BJ70 that really drew you to that vehicle?
1: Specifically, I wanted a diesel. Um, And that's what brought me into the import market for Toyotas because they never sold one in the US. Mm. They sold diesel in the Canadian market for two years, but um, the JDM or Japanese market imports have a tendency to be a little bit cleaner and lower mileage. So that's kind of how I fell upon Land Cruisers Direct. And it wasn't like I was seeking out a 70 series. I just wanted a diesel. Yeah.
0: And you wanted a diesel Land Cruiser.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, the Land Cruiser was like, I was getting a Land Cruiser. <laughs> <laughs>
0: And what was it about the Land Cruiser for you? What was the draw to buy a Land Cruiser for your first car?
1: <laughs> so I grew up horseback riding. I stole horseback ride. I'm a bit avid hiker. So I've always been kind of out and about in the backcountry. And I wanted to have a vehicle that kind of aligned with that, which is why I started looking up and researching 4x4s. And then I saw Land Cruisers and I was like, well, that's an intriguing vehicle. And as totally. I started researching them more, the longevity, of them as well was a really, really big draw. I think I called Steve on my 22nd birthday to commit to buying my vehicle. So cool. So I, being 21, I was like, well, I want a car that's going to last a really long time. Sure. (laughs) So I bought a vehicle that had an engine that's kind of known colloquially as the million mile engine. (laughs) That's why I have Beastie, the BJ70.
0: And it seems like you've named several of your vehicles. (laughs) So you have, you have another vehicle that's actually out with us today.
1: I do. So I moved to Colorado, oh gosh, three years after I bought Beastie. Um, and the whole, the hard cold morning starts. I just, felt bad.
0: <laughs> and maybe the salt on the roads.
1: Yeah, I just wanted to keep some of those harder miles and harder starts off of just my old car. And I ended up finding a... I um, wasn't really looking for a car, but I saw this kind of a, a unicorn of forerunners. I bought a 1999 um, Toyota 4Runner. So staying in the Toyota family, but it's called the Highlander edition. There's not a lot out there about it, but it has um, the stock rear locker. It's a manual and it has a sunroof. And that has become more or less my winter car my quick weekend trip car because it goes above 55 miles an hour (laughs) and his name is frank the forerunner so i stuck with the alliteration on that one definitely a fun car to. i think frank has helped my confidence off-road because i I, i'm not worried about hurting it as much because parts are easier to find sure that's helped my learning and driving ability off-road because i'm not so cautious all the time
0: That's a very rare vehicle to have. It's the last year of the manual transmission 4Runner, and it still has the 3.4 liter, which is a great engine, a lot of longevity in it. And then to have the rear locker, all in conjunction, and it looks like you've you've only modified it lightly.
1: <laughs> yeah, I so I threw an ARB front bumper on it, and that was that only happened because poor Frank was hit by a bus when he was parked one day. I used the insurance money and. Put an ARV on it. I do have a little build out in the back, which, you know, obviously I wanted because I want to be able to camp out of both my vehicles. And then a roof rack to throw my skis up there and occasionally a bike and maybe some extra fuel if I'm really feeling like I'm going to be out for a long weekend. But it's, I haven't really done anything major um, to either of my
0: vehicles. And it looks like you have the Forerunner mostly configured for you to be able to sleep in the back of it.
1: Correct, yeah. And
0: why do you go for that decision?
1: it's safety. Um, I do travel by myself pretty much all the time. <laughs> um, and as a solo female traveler, just the safety aspect is a, a big part of it. I want to be able to lock my doors. I don't leave anything outside at a campsite most times. So if I need to, I can just hop in that front seat and get out of a situation if I feel uncomfortable, if I feel like, you know, somebody's invading my area. Um, and I do that with both my vehicles well. So
0: You sleep in the 70 series as well. Yeah.
1: So Hi. Beastie's a little small, but I fit. And if it's diagonally,
0: um, I've made it work. It's also such a great way to camp. We had the Land Cruisers set up that way and to be able to not have to set anything up. There's no roof <laughs> tent to deploy. There's no ground tent to, to mess with the poles or have the, the thin nylon rip or whatever. You just, yeah, you have all the sound deadening and the quietness of a vehicle and they are more secure for sure. I think of the times that I've slept in gas station parking lots in developing countries, it's kind of nice to know that you're locked in a little bit. So yeah, that's definitely an upside for sure. Now, as I remember, you took your 70 series and you did a pretty big trip with that. What was that?
1: So back in, gosh, feels like a long time ago now. In 2018, in the summer, I did a three-month trip with Beastie and drove to Alaska and Northwest Canada and did that by myself with my dog. (laughs) So I did have some company, although she's not much for conversation. But that definitely, I just was very fortunate and I was actually awarded the Change Your World Fund grant, uh, one of the recipients that year, which helped fund the trip and was a big factor to be able to take three months off and explore. I pretty much drove all the drivable roads in Alaska. Um, So I did the Dalton Highway, just beautiful scenery, seeing the tundra and actually getting to the Arctic Ocean. And then um, the Kenai Peninsula and Homer. I just, I love Alaska.
0: (laughs) Incredible, right?
1: I'm maybe even more obsessed with the Yukon. I spent a lot of time driving around the Yukon as well, and also drove the Dumpster Highway the first year that it was fully open from Inuvik to Tuktoyaktuk. So that last section that they just added, the Summer Road, yeah, yeah. So I drove that as well. Again, just an incredible experience to have. Um, the Yukon took my heart. <laughs> I saw. Um, I spent a lot of time, as I said, in the Yukon and did the North Canal Road, um, which is fairly remote. You need a Very lot of range remote, yeah. for it, and I again did that by myself. And
0: did you make it to the Twitia River, or
1: I did not hit the river more because I was by myself and it was a really remote road. So as I, I kept a really good eye on my range and I had extra fuel with me, but I needed to remember I had about 200 miles to drive back. So that was part of the consideration of the turnaround point made it past the crossover into the Northwest territories, but couldn't go as far as I wanted.
0: Yeah that's that's an elusive goal for many people it's one of the last remaining overland prizes in North America is to complete the canoe
1: I I've talked to a lot of people about it and wanting to do it
0: and it, that's going to be the hard one <laughs> It is there's a lot of logistics to it yeah. for sure It's good that those kinds of problems still exist that I, people can aspire to and learn and research and
1: I I want that problem to always exist <laughs>
0: Now, what were some of the things that you learned about either your kit or your vehicle setup or even you on that journey? Usually you come away with some pretty noticeable takeaways.
1: Honestly, I didn't really come away feeling like I wanted to change my setup that much. But that also has a lot to do with the fact that I spent years in my car, camping, traveling, um, doing month-long trips, that sort of stuff with just boxes of gear so I could move my stuff around. And I really got to know how I wanted to utilize the space within the vehicle. So I didn't jump in to my vehicle ownership and just, you know, build it out right away. I I don't even think I would have built it out if I didn't do the Alaska trip, but I definitely needed some more organization for such a long trip. Personally, I really felt like a kind of, this is going to sound odd, but a creative awakening. I feel like I had set down my camera. I have a background in photography and I feel like I just got tired of always seeing life through a camera in a lot of ways. Obviously, with a trip like that, you're going through such amazing landscapes. And I gave myself the time that I felt like I wasn't going to be in a rush. So I took the time to really kind of get in touch with my camera again. And that hasn't really stopped. I've continued to photograph the landscapes that I go through. Um, it's I started writing a lot more. I have a tendency to kind of hang out by myself a lot. So it wasn't necessarily like it gave me the time to be by myself. It more gave me kind of the separation from home life, family, friends, whatever. So I could just be with myself and my own thoughts and write them down. And I feel like that was kind of the most important. And I on like an even more personal level like was kind of going through a really hard breakup and that trip made me get over that breakup in a lot of ways yeah Um, which I have always I always retreat into the back country or I spend a lot of time in Utah whenever I feel like uneasy about something or I feel like I need to work through something and it's not necessarily the act of like thinking and always on the forefront of my mind processing but just kind of the space and the distance to just be. And that was a lot of kind of that personal growth for the Alaska trip was just being myself again.
0: (laughs) It's amazing how much we grow when we are alone with our own thoughts, that those moments of stillness. And for some people, it's meditation. For other people, it's a hike alone in the outdoors, maybe a long (laughs) drive, long drive in a car, (laughs) a three month drive in a car. Yeah. Helps you sort a lot of things out. Yeah. I've definitely had some pretty significant life changes alone in a helmet on a motorcycle yeah for sure now, what were some of the things that you liked most about your setup? Like what worked great for you? The things that you would recommend to others to consider for their own <laughs> Alaskan journey?
1: Honestly, the biggest upgrade is just having a fridge. <laughs> it seems simple and straightforward, but I didn't get one until that trip. And it was like, wow, I don't have to get ice all the time. This is amazing. <laughs> and that you really don't have to do much to have a capable vehicle, mm-hmm. like four wheel drive. <laughs> Replace them with non-stock tires. so.
0: What kind of tires did you put on your Lincoln?
1: I have the Toyo Open Countries on Beastie. i very satisfied with those tires. Yeah.
0: And they survived the whole trip well, no flats yeah. and everything?
1: Everybody says that you're going to get a flat on the Dalton or the Dempster. I got none. <laughs> that's great.
0: Yeah, that's great. Yeah, it's interesting. You're right. With a even a stock Land Cruiser with some good tires, then you just go pretty much anywhere in the world. And that is something we talk about regularly on the podcast is unfortunately, there is this regular messaging that we get on Instagram or whatever, that the person that's doing all this traveling has this highly modified vehicle. And the reality is, is that you just don't need them to be modified much at all. And that's another great example of you went and did everything you wanted to do and probably remote camped a lot and a lot of unknown roads. And and it did everything you asked it to. Yeah.
1: I My family is not into off-roading or four-wheel driving. We road tripped and we hiked and we did get outside, but I kind of jumped into this completely headfirst. And for probably like two years, I didn't even replace the tires on Beastie. And the stuff that I got my car through, I'm still astounded. Like slick Utah mud, like I, that little car just made it straight through completely stock. I hadn't done anything to it. I maybe changed the oil once or twice. Yeah, sure. <laughs> and as I started to use it a lot more, it needed some more maintenance, but it really doesn't take much. What
0: a great reminder, right? It's
1: less stuff to worry about breaking down the road. <laughs>
0: now, what was the organization that you went up there for? or with, I guess in, in conjunction with.
1: Um, so the grant was the change your world fund grant, which is, um, by concert ventures, who was founded by Jonathan Roseanne Hanson, who also founded Overland expo. And it was kind of their way to give back. And the whole fund was in honor, honor of a young man, Alistair who volunteered, who's actually from Australia. And he passed away in 2014 from a traffic accident on his round the world motorcycle trip. Mm-hmm. So the Hansons joined with Alistair's parents and created this fund. You have to be a millennial um, or under 30 uh, to be able to apply because the whole idea was get the younger generation, young adults out there exploring, um, seeing our environment, interacting with our environment and being kind of that next generation of stewards. So that's how, um, I got
0: involved with that and still very thankful for that opportunity. What an amazing opportunity. And and how did the interaction with the Hansons and with that organization, how did that help you plan for the trip? Were they able to provide additional assistance around logistics and things yeah. like that as well?
1: We, um, so there was three of us that were, uh, awarded the grant that year and And we all had access to quite a few instructors and teachers that we could call up and be like, Hey, I have this question about this travel plan or whatever our concern was. And then Jonathan and Roseanne themselves made... They were so available to us for questions um, and help. And they also part of the program as well is you go to Overland Expo and you have to take certain classes to kind of get a better understanding about navigation and general medical care (laughs) and logistics. So that was part of it, too, was getting to go to Overland Expo and having our our way paid there as well um, and get that instruction from the various teachers that are at Expo.
0: So many people have benefited so greatly from All those courses and classes, if anything, it just gives that beginning of confidence that those instructors provide because they're so they're so skilled in doing that for sure.
1: Yeah. Expo, um, actually, well, besides the grant definitely helped my learning as well. Like I, I just kind of putzed around on my own for almost two years and then I had heard about Overland Expo and I was like, I should probably go to that. Yeah. (laughs) And I did and I kept going back and kept going back and I learned so much information and I went to, you know, I did the driving, driving instruction classes and it kind of got to the point that um, the director of its training, Graham Jackson, reached out and he was like, do you, want to teach some classes. We, we would love to have some more female instructors. And I was like, yes, I want to share this. Like I'm so passionate about getting out and getting people in their environment. And because it's been kind of my, one of my pieces of therapy. So I, I love being able to teach and get other people inspired to get out and connect with our environment, get out of the concrete jungles that a lot of us live in. So it's just been, it's been so rewarding in that sense as well. There's so much information to learn and there's so much information that we can all share. And I really like that sharing aspect because most overlanders have a tendency to (laughs) hang out by ourselves. So that's, I really appreciate that event and all the overland events. There's so many now to be able to share with the community and interact with the community.
0: And is that how you started to work with 7P was through that?
1: Yeah. Some of the classes that Graham brought me in on were under the 7P name and it's kind of... Again, I just kept going down the rabbit hole <laughs> to the point that um, now I'm part of the driver training team with 7P at Overland Expo, but then also um, 7P does training outside of Overland Expo and I help with that, do a lot of marketing for them as well. Um, just an amazing group of guys that kind of brought me under their wing in a lot of ways and the amount of knowledge in that group alone is... It's
0: impressive <laughs> and it's one of the reasons why we regularly recommended 7P on this podcast (laughs) is because, well, it makes a lot of sense to Matt and me because you're talking about a group of many instructors. I think it is... It is not going to be as advantageous for a student to go to a four wheel drive training course with a single instructor or just that sole proprietor that does the training. It doesn't mean that that's bad for basic four wheel drive stuff. I think it's fine. But if your goal is to travel around the world or your goal is to gain a deeper understanding where you go from the 101 course to the 201 or the 301 or the 401 is that you have to engage with a much larger group of trainers. Because if you look at 7P, for example, you have Nick who's got a lot of experience in the north of Africa. You have Graham who's crossed all of Africa and he's much more technical minded and he's got those great skill sets. And you've got all of these different instructors that have time in different environments around the world. And it's that accumulation of knowledge that is like a multiplier, I think, of the skills that they can teach in their courses. Whereas it's a challenging thing for a solo instructor to actually be able to impart much recent and relevant knowledge because they probably have to work all the time. They're probably not out traveling that much. And so as a result, you get a very narrow window into the profession. So I do like the fact... And another one that's good too is Overland Experts. They're in the Northeast. And again, a large pool of instructors Help to each other grow and learn. So, I, I do think that 7P is such a great organization. So,
1: they I can't sing their praises enough. I've also, having attended a lot of different classes from different instructors at Expo, um, one of the things that I also really appreciate about 7P is I've never felt like I don't fit in. Um, And I feel like sometimes being a woman in a very male-dominated community and industry, it's hard sometimes. You don't always get the same instruction. You don't always get the same respect in a lot of ways, which is why I've also so appreciated the fact that they they really want female instructors Mm. because it's not just guys out there and it shouldn't just be guys out there.
0: Let's hope not.
1: Like I've never felt like they have talked to me differently or have instructed me differently because I'm a woman. I've never had that experience with them, which is so important to me. And that's why I want to say it because that's really made a difference.
0: It's a show of respect for sure. Absolutely. If we want to continue to diversify the industry, which I believe is one of our our greatest challenges right now is making sure that we do that. We want young families and we want females and we want minorities properly represented in the space because otherwise it gets pretty boring if it's the same kind of person <laughs> yeah. doing all of the things. Um, we need to make sure we have that uniqueness and that diversity, I believe, within our ranks. I think that that's really important. So that's great to hear that 7P has done that properly. If you were to give a couple pieces of advice for someone who is wanting to get driver training and maybe a couple of those little hacks or skills that you teach in your courses that you could share on this podcast.
1: It's okay to turn around. <laughs> I feel like when I first got into it, one of the biggest things I had to remind myself of was it is okay to turn around. Yeah. And just always knowing that, you know what? If I can make a thousand point turn, I can get myself out of a situation if I need to. Like that helped me get onto some of these roads. And I was like, well, I'm not really sure where that goes, but I really want to see where that goes. It got me out there. It got me on dirt. It got me exploring. And just knowing that, you know what? If something just isn't in my skill set, that's fine. Mm. I can always turn around. And then the more time you spend getting out there, be prepared, have all your safety equipment, have a med kit. I first got Max Tracks because usually I travel by myself. So I wanted recovery equipment that I can use by myself. So I had that with me <laughs> just in case. The more time I spent on dirt, the more I understood how my vehicle moved over trails or moved over obstacles. And then kind of the next step for me was actually just going to Overland Expo. The ticket price can be a little expensive, but it definitely was for me at the time. I was a student and was not I didn't have a full-time job, but I made it happen because I knew that that was going to be a, such a great resource for me. Mm. So I spent a lot of time on driving Dirt roads, but then I, when I was able to, I did go and I wanted to get instruction. Um, And I've learned so much. And you can learn so much just from those one, two hour classes. No doubt. But a lot of it's just trial and error in a lot of ways and over preparedness, I think.
0: What are some things that you have learned from that group? What are some of those aha moments that you had with Nick or Graham or any of those other instructors that you just really took away as being powerful?
1: There's so many. <laughs> um, having a really short wheelbase vehicle that's fairly tall, it feels really tippy. And I have always, I hate off camber driving. And that was always a really hard thing for me to kind of push through. Mm. And it was Graham kind of like early on when I I wasn't like teaching with them yet, but it was at an expo that I was there early helping set set up. And then I helped break down. And there was an obstacle. It was an off camber obstacle uh, and the driving course. And Graham knew I had this like extreme fear of just like Flopping my car, <laughs> so he ended up. um He actually got Tim Huber. If you know Tim yeah, and Kelsey, they're yeah. amazing.
0: Kelsey actually used to work for us. Yes, so.
1: I just remember that. <laughs> so Tim hopped in, and Graham guided him into this position so I could see how tilted beast you could get and have it still be okay. <laughs>
0: yeah,
1: um and that was one of those like I couldn't, I wouldn't have gotten myself into a position that was that off camber to then learn. Oh, like that's okay. Obviously, each vehicle is going to be different when it comes to that, but that was kind of a big thing for me just to. Be like, you know what? Some pucker in your seat is okay. Yeah. <laughs> you will survive. But that was definitely like kind of a learning curve because then I could get, I felt better getting on harder trails and getting on harder obstacles. That has obviously improved my driving because I understand my vehicle more. And also it's gotten me, or it's opened up more possibilities for the trails that I can do or I feel like I can do. I still know that there's a line and I don't want to step over it because I like my car. Sure. <laughs> But well, that was definitely a big one. And there's just always, every time we're out, there's all these nuggets that the guys will just kind of spew out. And you're like, wow, well, <laughs> never thought about it that way. Sure. Duncan Barber, if you know Dunk. Amazing. Um, man. <laughs> incredible person. Just so hilarious, but so smart. He loves this hack of bringing sand-unfilled sandbags along and using them as a traction device if you're stuck in sand or you're stuck in, you know, a riverbed with small pebbles or something. You can fill sandbags and then line that up in front of your vehicle or, you know, behind if you're trying to reverse out and that can become attraction device, and then you just empty them out, and they roll up to like that big. Clever. <laughs> so that's a really great one. I always have sandbags in my car now. It's all that little stuff, and now I'm like, there's so much to think about. I can't remember it all because I have it written down. Like, <laughs> sure, it comes out when I'm using it, but
0: <laughs> they all come together. Even the stuff that we've worked with over the last couple of days, like some of the better deflation devices, yeah, <laughs> the super siphon and. All of these little hacks and tools that we use to make our trips a little bit better. It's great to hear you talk about these experiences because I think that our confidence is an accumulation of those experiences. So if we can just put more and more of those things together in a row or over a few years... And surprisingly, our, our confidence changes because we now have all of, maybe it's like those sandbags. We've lined all of those experiences up underneath to make the traveling easier.
1: Oh, absolutely. I, something as you know, said it a million times already, I travel by myself. And that can be a hindrance in a lot of ways for expanding your knowledge. So that's something else that I've so appreciated is being on trainings or being on trips with the team and knowing like, I trust those. I trust those guys. I know their skill sets. I understand their strengths and just having them spot me on something. I know they're not going to get me in into a situation I don't want to be in. So I can really trust them and getting that ability to get on harder obstacles and just having the confidence that they're there. And they're spotting me <laughs> and they know my vehicle's limitation and they know my limitations and that's really important too because I feel like sometimes that's hard where it's like well, my vehicle doesn't drive quite like a modern vehicle or whatever it is and all these guys like they have they have old defenders there's old land cruisers in the group there's just all these old vehicles and they've been doing it forever. So they understand some of that as well, which has been really, really helpful.
0: (laughs) Yeah, no doubt. There's something that's not only so charming about those old vehicles, but I think very confidence inspiring because it feels like that I'm driving an app (laughs) in most of these new cars. And there's so many electronic distractions and the car so heavily relies on electronic aids to accomplish its task that when you get into something so analog, like an old Defender. I mean, the Defender that I drive has no lockers and manual transmission. And it's just um, it does have a center differential lock, but no axle lockers. It is very analog, but I don't have to worry about like the LCD screen going out or the traction (laughs) control (laughs) failing. And I think that that's actually a really pleasant way to travel. Uh, I think about even our conversation we had with Sinway this morning about the phones and He was he was looking at how do I get a phone that only makes phone calls and receives texts?
1: Nokia brick.
0: Yeah. So that way we have like less distraction in our day. And maybe that's the case so often with vehicles. But it's just going to get worse because now they're going to be electric and they're going to be even more of an app. I'm
1: just going to stick with my 40 year old car for as long as possible.
0: It should last another 40 years, right? I hope so. For sure. (laughs) And a special thanks to one of this week's sponsors, Rumple Blankets. Rumple started literally in the back of a van. Their story is interesting. They were on a surf and ski trip through California and the founders of Rumple were sleeping in a van several miles up a dirt road near a secret hot springs. They woke up the next morning in sub-zero temperatures in a car that wouldn't start. They were outside of cell reception and confronted with the real possibility of a long walk into town. So instead they decided to bundle up in their sleeping bags and drink whiskey while they waited for someone else to show up. And that turned into hours and the conversation extended on to the subject of bedding and they came up with rumple Blankets. Their most popular product is the original Puffy Blanket. It is their flagship product and it's available in a one person, a two person and a junior size. I have used the two person for many years. I keep it as part of my kit that lives in the vehicle just in case I run into a situation similar to what they did where I'm stranded and need some additional warmth and insulation. It's also really useful for around the campfire when you want that little bit of extra comfort. Um, I'll also use it when sleeping in the vehicle. And then they are just the right size for a roof tent as well. So these are really high quality blankets that are weather resistant. They're made from recycled materials, they're washable, and they have very durable fabrics and construction, which makes them ideal for overland travel. Check out Rumple for your next blanket. Now, I noticed that. Your recovery and camping kit and all of your support equipment, it is very refined. I can see that you spent a lot of time with it. It all looks well used, very well organized too, but not like pedantic or didn't seem OCD. It seemed just like very accessible, well used. What are some of the things that in that kit that you have, that you wouldn't live without in both of your vehicles, part of your permanent kit that you really have come to appreciate?
1: Definitely tools Um, that, you know, if you don't have the tools and something goes wrong, you're out of luck. And that's one of those, like, I don't want to need it a lot, but when I have needed it and it's, you know, it can be as small as oh, my back door stopped opening because it's full of dust and the mechanism is jammed or whatever. And I've had to undo my whole back door opening mechanism. But if I didn't have a screwdriver to do that, I couldn't have fixed that. Sure. Um, I. Oh, Where are some of the things I've done? Oh, toolkit and ratchet straps that have saved my butt. <laughs> I lost a tie rod end, uh, 40 miles down of, I guess it's the forest service road equivalent in Canada. I don't remember what they call them. Um, outside of Pemberton and I lost a tie rod end. It just completely failed. Wow. failed so I had no steering <laughs> and no service. And I was by myself and I fixed it with, a. Well, it was a front runner stretch it. So it was stretchy and the me- like the ratchet mechanism wasn't big enough that it couldn't get tight enough. So it was perfect, just random thing that I had. And that got me out and got me
0: probably very slowly. Right like a kind of crawled along?
1: I probably like did 20 miles an hour.
0: So you, (laughs) so that I can visualize this. So where the, where the, the tie rod end goes into the knuckle of the, of the tire, or was it, was it the drag link that comes from the steering box?
1: Drag link that comes. So it was on the opposite side and that one before it goes like the other tie rod, Uh it failed at that point. Okay. So like The tie rod itself, like, is pretty much like that, yeah, sure. And it just went. And the mechanism that you can you can tighten the tie rod at at least you can on mine, but it was so rusted and corroded that I couldn't tighten it back over the the ball joint. Sure. Um, So that's why I had to like just wrap a ratchet strap around it to keep it together.
0: (laughs) Stretch it, save the day.
1: That was a little. That's my proudest trail fix.
0: That's, that's totally legit.
1: (laughs) Tools and I have a lot of, now I have a lot of stratchets with me and ratchets (laughs) and I probably always carry more water than I need because that's always another really important one.
0: You've got to have it. And with you doing as much backcountry hiking and trekking that you do, You probably need it for that to support those activities as well.
1: Medical kit's more important for that, (laughs) which I have in my car. Sure. I didn't know how much stuff you kind of needed in the beginning and I did all right, but I've definitely learned it's nice to have a lot of those things that you may not necessarily pull out all the time, but you definitely
0: want them. Those essential pieces of kit, like having good communications, having a good way to navigate it, which may just be an, a map and a compass and...
1: Paper maps. <laughs> One more thing on the tool roll because I think it's just important. Tools don't do anything unless you have the knowledge in terms of what to look for if something's going wrong. So that's something that I've also really been very fortunate about. Um, there's an amazing mechanic in, I live in Boulder, Colorado. There's an amazing man, mechanic that lives in the Boulder area. That's kind of like one of the most sought after Land Cruiser mechanics. And he kind of took me under his wing. And what's his name? Robbie Atkinson is people know him by his mud handle, which is Powder Pig. But his company is Adventure Off-Road. Doesn't have much of a web presence, though. He has been incredible. I always would, if I, you know, needed something fixed, I call him up and I would plan that I would leave the shop because I didn't want to like invade his space or his time. But every time he was like, no, 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 like I want to show you this. So he would do the repair whatever it was. Like we did my water pump, uh, valve adjustment, done knuckles with Robbie. Um, He was always, he wanted to teach me because he wanted to make sure that I... You know, if I got into a sticky situation, I had some idea like mechanically what was going on. Um, So now I can do a lot of stuff even, at, you know, in my carport doing my own basic maintenance or I rebuilt my manual um, clutch master last year. And I did that by myself with some nervous calls to my friends that sure. were like, is it?" am I doing this right? (laughs) That's been really important too. And then that's also helped me understand what tools I need in my toolkit. Because you have a Land Cruiser, you need 10, 10 millimeters because they're all going to go missing.
0: (laughs) Oh, that is so true.
1: But what my car needs isn't necessarily what somebody else's car needs. So knowing the tools that you need for your vehicle, I think is really important too. So that was a good lesson for me.
0: (laughs) When we were talking earlier today, you brought up several guidebooks that you love. And one of the things that we like to ask on the podcast is your favorite books. Now this can be fiction or nonfiction, and it can be about adventure or not about adventure, but maybe the books in your life that have been the most having the greatest impression on you, or maybe the books that you've gifted most often to other people. What are some that come to mind for you? Desert Solitaire. <laughs> yeah, that one has come up a lot. So Edward
1: Abbey, um, honestly, his one of his lesser known books, Black Sun, is my favorite book. One of them, and it's an odd, you know, if somebody goes out and reads Black Sun after this, they're gonna be like. Why is this her favorite book? That's just weird. But for some, there was just something about the story. It was the two lead characters you can never quite figure out. And I really liked that air of mystery because it was never solved, I guess. Um, At least that's how I felt about it. And then I'm actually almost done with one right now that I'm like, this has been quite the story. And it's a, a nonfiction. It's a biography kind of called The Stranger in the Woods. It's about a hermit that lived in the Maine woods for 27 years and saw two people the entire time. So kind of a little bit of an oddball, but very endearing and just his whole like the life story of this man Chris Knight is just fascinating to me. Is it an autobiography did he? He did not write it and it was kind of odd character. He told this reporter that if anybody was going to write a biography on him, he ha- he could do it. But then he ended up completely cutting this reporter out of his life. And so the reporter was like, well, he said he wanted me to do his biography. So I'm going to write his story because I think it's a really interesting story. Just general author. Well, I really, really enjoy having Marcus Aurelius's meditations around because that's You don't have to actually, like, it's not a story. It's just snippets and ideas. And I really appreciate that that you can open it to any page and something on that page is profound. But you don't have to get stuck in a whole story. So that's something to kind of
0: think of. Yeah, the emperor of Rome, right? (laughs) I mean, he's a fascinating human being. Yeah. And how, what he sacrificed for his people and even his life in the end. You know, it's just amazing.
1: That's another important one. I read a lot of political philosophy. I used to be a political science major and I really liked kind of the philosophy side of it. And policy analysis side of it. But those are probably not very exciting to most (laughs) people. Those are great.
0: Those (laughs) are great selections, though, that you've shared. That's awesome. Now, since you talked about your favorite guidebooks earlier or some of your favorite ones, what are some of the guidebooks that you like or maybe even the Overland training and concept books that you really like? What are some of your favorite? The one that you
1: saw this morning, which is definitely my favorite uh, guidebook. It's Utah Backcountry Byways. Um, Tony Hugel is the author and he doesn't just have a Utah guidebook he's done done Colorado, Nevada Desert, California. There's like 6 within his backcountry byways series and I have all of them and it's just a very easily understood, straightforward. I feel like the information isn't hidden, you know. It's like getting there. All right, I got to the beginning of the road. What to see on the road, mile mark numbers and average times and difficulty. And obviously the difficulty changes, but I've really appreciated just how well laid out that book is or all of them because it's all in the same style. The Mark Kelly ones for Utah, but that's more like technical, like mountaineering and stuff like that. But I have a climbing background too. So I have that interest. So I really appreciate those. I think those books are harder to understand because the information is not laid out well, but the information is there. It's just a matter of figuring out what he's saying.
0: (laughs) Deciphering it. Yeah. (laughs) If you were to, now you've had all these, all this experience and you've, become a trainer and you've done this trip to Alaska, if you were able to sit down your 22-year-old self that just bought this Land Cruiser (laughs) and give her some advice, what would be... It doesn't have to be you. Anyone that's new to overlanding, now that you've had these experiences, what advice would you give them? What were some of your takeaways or lessons learned or you think was most important?
1: Just do it. Get out there. Get exploring. See your environment. Interact with your environment. Understand how to protect it as well. Um, I've always, I've always kind of had that stewardship kind of in me. I used to be on the executive committee for Surfrider Foundation in the Santa Barbara chapter. And we did a lot of pollution issues, land use issues. So protecting the areas that we all love has always been really important to me. Just getting out there and doing it and connecting with where we are, I think is just so important. I wouldn't necessarily tell younger me like, oh, avoid doing this or don't do this because that's been Half the fun is just figuring out this life and this process. And I've learned so much about myself that... I that's why I I appreciate this kind of travel so much as well is because I am who I am today because of those hardships, because of learning on the road, because of seeing these other environments. It all comes together into who I am now. And I still have a lot to learn. And I hope to have many, many years to learn. (laughs) I think it's just so important to get out there and experience life and the lessons will come and they should come and be open to lessons. Maybe that's it. Do it and be open to learning.
0: (laughs) That's great advice, Maggie. And if people wanted to learn more about 7P and if they wanted to learn more about you, where can they find that information?
1: Uh, Easiest way for me is on Instagram at Maggie McDermott. You'll get a mix of, there's going to be off-roading and overlanding, but there's also going to be my dog and some horses and a lot of hiking, but just generally outdoors. But if you guys have any questions, reach out to me there. Um, if you want to learn more about 7P, their Instagram is 7P. And it's just the number seven, the letter P is in Paul, four by four. And that's a great way to learn about 7P. And the website's up there as well.
0: Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Your story is an inspiration. And I think that you have done already so much good for the industry. I'm thankful that you're in it. And I just, I look forward to seeing what you're going to accomplish over the decades to come and the journeys that you're going to take with your land cruisers (laughs) around the world. Maybe we'll have you on the podcast after your next big journey. So.
1: Thank you so much. I've so enjoyed this entire week and being able to sit here and have this conversation with you. So thank you.
0: You're welcome, Maggie. (laughs) Thank you again. And thanks everyone for listening.